The sermon scripture reading is from Acts 13, 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyrus, <clears throat> Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain musician, a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, may you send out your spirit into our hearts this morning that we might hear what it is that you want to speak to us. May, may your word be unchained, glorious in all its power and beauty. May it grip us. May you call us into a deeper, more loving, more faithful relationship with our Savior through this morning. And may you send us out in his glorious name. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, my, my dad uh, worked for a few years for a Christian ministry called the Pocket Testament League, which is actually a pretty historic ministry. They were founded over 100 years ago. And from the beginning, what, mostly what they have done is they've produced, kind of mass-produced Gospels of John, and then they'll go to oftentimes big world events and hand out Gospels of John. So my dad worked there in the 90s, uh, and he went to the Olympics when they were in 1998 in Nagano, Japan. And again, they would go to the various venues, and they'd stand outside, and they had Gospels of John in all, all kinds of languages. And so you had people, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands of people go to the Olympics, and, uh, and they'd come, in, and, and many of them would take home a Gospel of John. And he told me a story when he got back of he was standing outside the entrance to a large Buddhist temple. Buddhism is one of the two major religions in Japan. And he was handing out Gospels of John um, to people going in and out of the temple. And as he's standing out front of the entrance of that temple, he all of a sudden felt this overwhelming sense of fear. And he heard this voice in his head tell him, you need to leave. And my dad had freaked him out. And so he, I mean, it freaked him out enough that he began to actually walk away. I mean, he's thinking, I, I need to get out of here. I don't know what's going on. And so he walks away and he makes it maybe 50 or 100 feet and kind of comes to himself and thinks, what, what am I doing? Like, I, I, I come in the name of Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. I don't need to be afraid of anything. And so he kind of sheepishly walks back to the entrance of the temple. And about a minute later, a, a large group of school children come walking out of the temple. And each one of them takes a gospel of John in Japanese and takes it back to their homes. What do you make of that story? What was going on there? 
for some of us, there may be a little bit of skepticism, like, well, it's pretty coincidence. I mean, it's just a coincidence. You know, kids come in and out of that temple. It's one of the major temples in Nagano. My dad tends to have anxiety, maybe just was anxious. But I, I tell you what, I, you know, growing up for a season of my life as a missionary kid, so I grew up around missionaries, and these kinds of stories are just common. Every missionary I've talked to has stories of just weird coincidences of going into the field and experiencing difficulties they didn't expect, just strange difficulties, can't get your luggage through customs for a year, and that's just like, how, this was, what's going on? Um, sometimes disturbing coincidences. And I think, I, I think my dad's story reveals two truths that our story in Acts also reveals, which is that if, if we go out in Jesus' name, and remember, every one of us is called to be a missionary. The question is whether you're called to be a missionary here in Louisville or to go somewhere else. But if we want to go out in Jesus' name, sent out by Jesus, we need to expect opposition. The world that we're going to is not a world that's at peace. It may look peaceful, it may look prosperous, it may look wonderful, but there is a deeper spiritual reality that is a world in revolt against King Jesus. And so because of that, we should expect opposition. But secondly, we don't need to be afraid. And that's what my dad remembered. As he was walking away from the Buddhist temple, he's filled with fear. Yes, we are aware that the world we go into is one which is in revolt against the God who created it. And yet we don't need to be afraid because we go in the name of the risen Jesus Christ. And not only that, we go with his spirit. We have no reason to be afraid. So our outline for us this morning is first point, beginning a new missionary work. Second point, spiritual opposition. Third point, salvation. So our first point, beginning a new missionary work. Again, let me read verses four to five for us. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, to recap, we looked at last week, uh, first three verses of Acts. Uh, you have the Antioch church there. They're just living as Christians, as faithful Christians, worshiping together, doing the ministry of the gospel together. And the Holy Spirit speaks to that church, and he gives the only direct command of the Holy Spirit to a church in all of Acts. And he tells the church, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work I have for them. Uh, and so the church sets apart Saul and Barnabas and sends them out on the first Gentile-focused missionary movement, the first missionary movement in the history of the church. And in some ways, you could see this as the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise, promise given all the way back in some ways in Genesis 3, but certainly in Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham, I'm going to make your, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation, and through them I'm going to bless the world, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's a theme throughout all of Scripture that's slowly happening, coming, uh, God bringing that into being. And then finally here in Acts 13, that promise is coming into fruition as they are going not into Jewish territory, but into the Gentile world with the gospel which was made for every person. It's happening. And the first stop in this missionary journey is at Cyprus. Now I have a map for us of Cyprus uh, just because I want us to see that these are real historical events. You know, this happened a long time ago, but this is real places you can go to still, real things that God did, and also it just helps for me to, you know, I, I, I enjoy maps. 
So Cyprus, uh, the first one, as you can see, the, the area that Paul does a lot of his first missionary journey and a lot of his second too, kind of where it is in terms of global context. It's, it, a lot of it's in what would be modern-day Turkey. And then on the next map, it zooms in and shows where Cyprus was. So Cyprus is this little island in the Mediterranean Sea. You can see that they start in Salamis. That would have been the commercial center of Cyprus, the largest city. And then they do a preaching tour across the island and finish in Paphos, which would have been kind of more of the capital, an administrative center, a smaller city. Similar to Kentucky, Louisville is the largest city, kind of the commercial center, sorry to anyone from Lexington, of the, of the, of the state. And then Frankfurt, right, is the capital, even though it's a much smaller city. So that's, that's Salamis and Paphos. Um, and, 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 and why did they go to Cyprus first? You might ask that, like, what was the thinking there? And it doesn't tell us. But it's interesting that we do know Barnabas was from Cyprus. Uh, so that may be one reason, is he perhaps had connections. It was a logical first step. But also, interestingly enough, there were Christians at Cyprus already. And we know that because it tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the world to no one except Jews. So there were Christians in Cyprus uh, at the time. And so perhaps part of the thinking was, we'll go and they'll do this evangelistic mission, but also strengthen the Christians the Christians that are there. And so they don't really get to their pioneering missions work until our next uh, uh, part of chapter 13 we'll look at in two weeks. But Cyprus is their first stop. And one detail that Luke mentions for us, which is just helpful to know for the, the, the storyline of Acts, is that Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, was with them. And uh, Luke just gives us that tidbit because John Mark proves to be an incredibly important figure for the relationship of Barnabas and Saul. In fact, an incredibly divisive figure. And so Luke was just letting us know that he was with them. But they go and they, and they begin in Salamis and they do this preaching tour across the, the uh, island of Cyprus. Now, I have an observation I want to make uh, on Paul's missionary methods. And I'm, I'm just pointing this out because this is Paul's standard modus of operandum for every time he goes into a new city. And it says it right here in verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Every city that Paul or Saul would go into, if there was a Jewish population, he would first preach the gospel in the synagogues, and their meeting places, uh, before he would then go to Gentiles. And what's interesting is for Saul, this isn't just, you know, a, 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 you know, ethnic courtesy to his fellow countrymen or a matter of convenience. This is a matter of principle. In Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Something principled about this. Why is this a principle for, for Paul or for Saul? And their answer, I think, is pretty simple. It's because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. We forget that sometimes. We imagine him being, you know, looking like me, white, blue-eyed. Um, you know, certainly my, my crush growing up, you know, was a very white-looking Jesus. He was, a Jew, he was the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of the Jewish scriptures. He was one foretold to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And so the gospel came first to those to whom it was promised to first. And in Jerusalem, the gospel had been preached, and all those who wanted to believe in Jesus believed in him. But when it came to the Jews and what you call the diaspora, which was the Jews spread throughout the Roman Empire, many of them had not had a chance to hear about Jesus the Messiah. 
So the first thing Paul would do is he'd go into a city and he would preach to the Jews and give them a chance to accept their own Messiah. And then he would move on to the Gentiles. They're just worth pointing out because every time there is a Jewish population in a city, Paul will begin with them. And it's helpful to understand why. But also, I think there was a strategic reason here. And again, this is looking at Paul's missionary strategy. But Paul would go looking for places where God was already at work. He would go looking for places where people were talking about faith and spirituality and meaning and where religions were being practiced. And of course, if there's a synagogue, those are people who already hold the same scriptures. They have all the building blocks to understand sin and atonement and sacrifice. So it's like, just strategically, where are you going to start? Well, you're going to start in the synagogue. That would make sense. But Paul would also preach in the marketplaces. Now, they may not seem like a very strategic place to go for us, but again, at the time, marketplaces would have been, uh, there would have been temples everywhere. There would have been food that had been offered to, offered to idols being sold. Uh, there was a whole lot of religious stuff going on in marketplaces. It could be a very natural place to have these kinds of conversations. Or, for instance, when Paul goes to Athens, he goes to the Areopagus, which is a place close to my heart, where people just sat around all day discussing philosophy and religion. It's like, this sounds like the kingdom of God has come. And, he, and that's where he goes and preaches. He, he, he looks for where God is at work, where there's an openness to these sorts of things, and then he inserts himself in that. And I think there's food for thought for us. Um, we want to be building relationships with those around us, but we also want to be looking for where's God at work. Because God is always at work. We forget that sometimes, but he's always at work. And we may not see that, and that's why we ask him to open our eyes, but who knows what he's doing in the heart of your neighbor this week, or in the heart of your coworker, or in the heart of your family member. We just don't know. So we're praying, Father, show me. Show me where you're at work. And part of that is learning to, you know, winsomely drop gospel hints, or ask just open-ended questions, and you can figure out pretty quickly whether people have any interest in talking about faith and spirituality or not. So anyways, it's just interesting looking at Paul's missionary methodology, and we'll look at it more because there's, I think, a lot that we can glean, again, as 21st century Christians. Um, but, but, the, but the application, sorry, for this first point, this is really the, 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 the main theological point of this first point, a new missionary work, is that, and what's emphasized here is that it is the spirit who sends out, the spirit who authenticates, and the spirit who empowers for mission. Again, in verses 1 to 3, the whole point of that little snapshot is that the Spirit directly commands a church, send out Paul and Barnabas. And then interestingly, in verse 4, he reiterates it in case we had forgotten. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, when Paul has his confrontation with Bar-Jesus, the whole emphasis is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the big themes that Luke is trying to draw out here is that Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're sent out by the Spirit, they're off, their mission is authenticated or off, sorry, authorized by the Spirit, and they're empowered by the Spirit. And the reason why Luke is trying to bring this to the forefront is what Paul and Barnabas are going to do. Ultimately, they're looking to plant churches. And true church planting uh, is going to involve some kind of pioneering work of seeing people come to faith, gathering them together into the community of faith. Um, I remember going to a church planning conference one time, and the speaker gave us a warning where he said, in America, too often church planting looks like 
uh, moving into a space and setting up the cool church, and you're getting people who are transferring from other churches because now you're the cool church, but you're not actually reaching non-Christians, and that's, that's not the point of church planning. Church planning is supposed to be at some level a pioneering work, and the reason why Luke emphasizes the role of the Spirit is the only one who has the power to erase the leopard spots or melt the heart of stone is the Spirit of God. If your goal is to go out and see people come to faith, that's not a matter of my winsomeness or my strategy or my hard work or my intelligence. Only, only the Spirit can bring new life. And this is what Jesus tells us in John 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Only the Spirit of God brings new birth. And that's why he's saying, look, this is a movement of the Spirit. Because what they're going to do is humanly not possible unless the Spirit does it. Uh, I can just as easily convert someone as I can lift this building with my, you know, like I can go over here and I'm going to lift it. It's just not physically possible. But that would be easier to do than to convert someone on, on my own ability. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Luke is, is, is letting us know that the spirit is the one who's sending Paul and Barnabas out. He's the one who's going to do the work. Then they don't be impressed with Paul and Barnabas. They're just the vessels. And further, this is why prayer and effective mission always go together. Because we realize we could have the most thought-out, brilliant outreach strategy ever constructed, and it'd be nothing unless the Spirit opens hearts. At the same time, you can have the worst outreach strategy ever, and if the Spirit of God is at work, the very gates of hell are going to crumble. And so we pray. We pray because we have no other strategy that works, no other means to look to, and we make dependent prayer a kind of a way of life. As Christians who want to be sent out by Christ, who want to go in his name, we, we make prayer like our breathing, right? Breathe in. Father, send out your spirit reveal your son to my friend, to my neighbor, to my coworker. Breathe out. Jesus, glorify your name. Advance your kingdom. Come soon. Breathe in. Father, send your spirit. Just part of our breath. So the spirit, so sorry, Luke emphasizes the role of the spirit because of what Paul and Barnabas are going to do which is only something the Spirit can do, bringing new life. But the second reason that Luke emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit is because this missionary work is going to face opposition. And their physical abilities and intelligence and strength would not be enough to overcome Satan and his plans. This brings us to our second point, which is spiritual opposition. So first point, beginning a new missionary work. Second point, spiritual opposition. And this is the central action of the story, a showdown between this magician, Bar-Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. And at the end of the day, it's not all that much of a competition because the spirit of Jesus Christ is with Paul. But let's get into it. Again, verses 6 to 11, let me, uh, let me read it for us. 
And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So again, they start in Salamis, this commercial center, and they do a kind of preaching tour through the island and finish in Paphos. And I want to try to get us to picture what they're seeing as they come into Paphos. Because an ancient Greco-Roman city would have been remarkably different than a modern secular city. And one of the chief differences beyond the architecture and all the obvious technological differences is that religion and the worship of gods was far more public and centered uh, if, you had, if you, as a Westerner, could walk into an ancient Greco-Roman city, you'd be shocked by how just the worship of the gods is everywhere. It's not tucked away in buildings. It's out on the main street. And not just that, but, but the activity of worship is incorporated into the regular civic events. You have a ceremony in the city. It begins with offering sacrifices to the gods. You, you have a new proconsul taking over. It begins and ends with sacrificing to the gods. In fact, they had to make oaths of fealty to the gods of the city. It would have been shocking. The idea of a separation in church and state would have not just been strange to an ancient Greco-Roman citizen. It would have been foolish. Well, if, if you're not going to appease the gods, who's going to watch up, out for you? And if you don't have the worship of the gods to provide unity to the city, where's your unity coming from? Which is honestly something as, as, as Americans we're facing right now. If you don't share any kind of common framework or ideals, what does hold you together? And the answer is not quite clear yet. But the point is, as Paul and, 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 uh, and Barnabas walk into Paphos, it would have been obvious to them that the city they're walking into was a battleground. It just, it just would have been... A, all across a city. This is a battleground of the gods, of spiritual powers vying for the hearts and the minds of people. It just would have been obvious. The moment they set foot in the city, there would have been no, no lack of clarity in that area. And, and, and we have to be honest, that the world has not changed. It's the same with Louisville today. Any city that is not the city of God is a battleground of the gods just better at hiding it. Now, there's a tension here that we need to walk, right? The world we live in is a world made by God. And therefore, it's good. Satan can't create. That's a, theologians have, have, have long established that Satan does not have creative powers. Only God can create. Satan distorts. And so God made a beautiful world that we recognize, we embrace, and every human being is made in the image of God, which means no one is, 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 is without worth, and everyone has something to offer, and there's truth and good, goodness and beauty in, in every facet of culture. But at the same time, the Bible also speaks about the prince of this world. 
And that there's, there's, this world is in revolt against the God who made it. And that human beings made in the image of God are marred. That image is marred. But it's not as obvious to us when you walk out in Louisville. That this is the battleground of gods and cosmic figures. And because of that, in some ways, it's more dangerous for us because we can walk around as if it's peacetime. And we're hopping out of our, of our foxholes and not worrying about snipers. and Because it's just peace. And I think that's one of the reasons why one of the biggest temptations for American Christianity is spiritual sleepiness and, ap- and apathy because we don't see the danger around us. But Barnabas and Paul would have had no misconceptions. They knew what they were walking into. And as they enter into Paphos, there's a high-ranking official, a proconsul named Sergius, and he wants to hear about Jesus. And he sends for Paul and Barnabas. In mission circles, you would call Sergius a person of peace. Um, it's this concept taken from when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. He said, you go into villages and, and find someone who's willing to host you. And when you stay there, your peace will be upon that house. And so missionaries and missiologists will talk about persons of peace in the community as someone who is open to the gospel and who invites the missionary or the Christian worker into their home or into their lives and ask, acts as a relational bridge between the Christian and the community. Kind of gives the Christian or the missionary kind of a toehold in the community. And, and this is who Sir, Sergius is, and, and, and he's not just anyone, but he's like basically the governor of the city. And so if this man becomes a Christian, I mean, he knows many people in the city. His conversion would be quite the public testimony to who this Jewish Messiah Jesus is. And so when he calls for Paul and Barnabas, you've got to imagine, they're, they're thinking, this is the Spirit. This is not, that doesn't happen in most cities. This is a divinely anointed moment. But not everybody is happy to see Paul and Barnabas. And this is where you get this showdown between this magician and Paul. And the way he describes it in our text, he says it's a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and that this man was with the proconsul. And so the image there is he's somehow in an official capacity with the governor of the city. Some people think, well, he may have been on the kind of royal court, his court of advisors. But he's not just like employed by the proconsul, he's present in this meeting. And so when the proconsul invites Paul and Barnabas to come and share about Jesus, there is Bar-Jesus arguing against them, speaking in Sergius's ear. And honestly, I mean, you know, Paul and Barnabas are, are non-entities, strangers, whereas Sergius knows Bar-Jesus. This doesn't look very propitious for Paul and Barnabas. And he's a magician. Let's just talk about the significance of being a magician, okay? Because when we think of magicians, we think of entertainers. Um, someone does like slights of, you know, tricks by slights of hand, and we pay money. We're like, ah, it's so cool. How do you do that? But no one ever thinks of a magician as having like power, real power. And uh, no president would want to have a magician on their cabinet, right? Which is essentially who uh, uh, Bar Jesus is. He's on the cabinet, essentially, for Sergius. But what we have to realize is that Bar-Jesus had real power. He wasn't just doing sleights of hand. And it's why Paul, when he confronts him, calls him, you son of the devil. There's a play in words there. Bar is Aramaic for son of. And so his name is literally son of Jesus or son of salvation. He's saying, no, no, you're not a son of salvation. You're a son of the devil. 
In other words, Satan is able to work through Bar-Jesus in, in some ways. And we know from the Gospels that Satan had real power to deceive and manipulate and even to physically afflict people. There was a reason why Bar-Jesus had influence and power in the city. He'd been able to do stuff that showed real power and people respected that. Not only that, but he's also, he's, he's also Jewish, which is interesting. It tells us a little bit about his character. The Old Testament prohibited Jews from using witchcraft or magic. And so he's clearly not a practicing Jew, or he's in some way apostate. And then he's also a false prophet, so someone who would falsely appeal to divine authority for what they would say. And this is the man who is opposed to Paul and, and, and Barnabas. And you got to wonder, why did Bar-Jesus, why did he oppose Paul and Barnabas right away? Maybe he would have, like, heard him out first, and, but why was he automatically opposed? And again, we got to remember, Cyprus had Christians. And so it's possible that Bar-Jesus had seen what happens when someone turns to Jesus and how it changes their life and how they give allegiance to only one being, and Bar-Jesus probably realizes that if Sergius, the proconsul, becomes a Christian, well, there goes Bar-Jesus' job. It's probably going to cost him his income. And so he opposes Paul and Barnabas. And this is a reminder for us that the gospel really is costly. It's good news. Oh, it's good news. Never forget that. But it is costly. To follow Jesus would have cost Bar-Jesus his vocation and his means of providing for himself. It would have required a pretty radical redefinition of who he thought he was. The gospel is always costly. And it's costly for us today. And to be honest, as, as our culture moves more and more post-Christian, there's going to be a greater and greater cost for many people if they want to become a Christian. And so we have to believe in a gospel that is so good, so beautiful, so worthy of anything it could ask of us that we won't blink when we see what it's going to cost someone to follow Jesus, when it's going to cost them to reorient their lives and change their lifestyle and their sexual practices, to re-understand their identity unless we really believe the gospel is the greatest news in the world, we're not, we gotta believe that. And so that's, that's, that's Bar-Jesus. He's opposing the gospel because it will cost him if Sergius becomes a Christian and certainly if he became a Christian, it was gonna cost him. But on the other side of this confrontation, we have the apostle. And just a quick side note, this is where we learn of Saul's other name, Paul, He's not renamed. He, he had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And Saul is his Hebrew name or Aramaic name. And then Paul is his Greek name. And as he's about to enter into his Greek ministry, he now goes by Paul from here on out. So we can now start calling him Paul rather than this confusing Saul, Paul stuff. He is now Paul. But Paul's response, what is key about Paul's response? Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, and it goes on from there. What's the key there? Filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that what Luke is telling us is that Paul's courage here, I mean, you know, talk about courage and conviction, stares down part Jesus. That's not Paul. 
That's the spirit. Like, yeah, it fits Paul's personality from what we know about it, but what Luke is saying is like, no, that, that, none of that is coming from Paul. That's coming from the Holy Spirit filling Paul. Not that Paul didn't have the spirit beforehand, but the spirit indwells him in a special way for this ministry moment he has for him. I think a lot of times we look at someone like Paul and we think, well, yeah, of course Paul's going to do that. He's Paul. He wrote third of the New Testament, right? He's just an intense individual. Like there are, you know, there are Christians and then there's Paul. So of course he's going to do this. Interestingly enough, though, the Corinthians didn't think Paul was particularly impressive in person. So Paul has to defend himself when he writes uh, first or second Corinthians. I can't remember which one, but he's like, it's like, you say that I'm unimpressive in person, but my letters are weighty. And we don't know what that means. Maybe Paul had a high voice like me. I feel that. No, no, you know, it would be wonderful. I could thunder up here with this like deep baritone, but no, 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 I sound like Michael Sarah. So any power in me comes from the spirit. And maybe that was Paul. Maybe he had a speech impediment. We don't know, but the, the point of this, though, is in this text is that what's happening here, the courage and conviction is coming from Paul. It's not from him. It's the spirit filling him to do what he could not do in his own power and strength. And because of that, in the end, this confrontation is pretty one-sided. Paul simply stands up, shuts down bar Jesus, and utters a judgment. A judgment that is for the benefit of Sergius, right? Because Sergius is like, who do I believe, bar Jesus or Paul? Paul preaching this Jewish Messiah or bar Jesus who I've known for, for who knows how long. He's showing Sergius, no, this, this false prophet, he is just that. He's, false, he's a false prophet. He isn't, don't listen to him. But interestingly enough, this judgment is also for the benefit of Bar-Jesus himself. This judgment is prophetic. Uh, and again, the judgment, um, uh, verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is a prophetic judgment. I talk about how prophecy is sometimes telling the future, but more often than not, it's telling it as it is. It's revealing what is really the case. And so here's a man who claimed to know, who claimed to see, and then this judgment revealed what is the case, is that he's blind. And not only does he not have the ability to lead anyone, he must be led himself, and he goes around searching for someone to lead him by hand. Bar-Jesus' outside now reflects the truth about his spiritual blindness. It's a prophetic judgment for all to see. No, 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 don't listen to this Bar-Jesus. He's, he's a blind prophet. But it's also for the benefit of Bar-Jesus. This judgment was merciful. Because listen to what it says. Uh, the hand, you will be blind and unable to see for a time or until the appointed time. It's a temporary blindness. It's very similar to, to uh, Zechariah and Luke 1. Zechariah is a, fa a father of John the Baptist. An angel appears to him and says, you're gonna, your wife's going to have a son, and he doesn't believe the angel. So the angel says, well, you're going to be mute. You won't be able to speak until this baby is born. And he can't speak until John the Baptist is born, and it gives Zechariah an opportunity to reflect and to repent of his disbelief. And that's what, that's what the Spirit does to bar Jesus. He's blind for a time, to give him an opportunity to reflect. Again, he was Jewish. He knew who Yahweh was. This was, this was God's mercy, giving him an opportunity to reflect on what he'd been dedicating his life to, and is that really the truth, and, and receive Jesus as the Messiah, as his Messiah.
So again, let's not miss the mercy in the midst of this judgment. But what's, what's the application for us here? And the application is, brothers and sisters, we have to be prepared for this kind of spiritual, this kind of spiritual attack. Again, don't be deceived. Louisville is a beautiful city and it can seem so peaceful and prosperous, but we live in a war zone. We live in a battleground of the gods. Don't be deceived by outward appearances. We no longer parade our idols through the streets and offer our children as sacrifices, but it is still a, a war zone. Are you ready for that? Let me step out this door. If we were actually in, in a war zone with bolts flying, it would change how you left that door. I want you to know that you are. And Satan wants to destroy you, and he'll do everything he can too. But here's the thing. You, you don't need to be afraid. Be aware, but you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because the spirit of Jesus goes with you. That's what Paul and Barnabas saw. You know, Paul and Barnabas, again, they were, they were very much aware of what they were stepping into. They, they had no false conceptions. I mean, the, the, the signs of the spiritual cosmic warfare was ever around them as soon as they stepped into Paphos. But yet they went anyways. They didn't hide in their Christian enclaves, keeping the world at bay. Like, they went out in the name of Jesus. And it cost them. Not miss that. But here's, here's the truth. Although it costs them, we'll see some of this as we look at the stories ahead. You know, exile and beatings. And Paul, later in his life, would write to the Philippians and say, look, I've, I've, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been whipped. I've, I've, I've lost my homes, I've lost friends. None of it, none of it compares to the greatness of knowing Jesus, the greatness of walking in fellowship with the risen Son of God. So what an episode to begin this first missionary journey on, right? In case Paul and Barnabas needed some extra encouragement before they get into some real pioneering missionary work next week or in two weeks. He gives them an encouragement my spirit's with you. You don't need to be afraid. I will accomplish what I need to through you. And nothing will be able to stop the spread of the gospel. This brings us to our third and last point, salvation. So first point, beginning a new missionary work. Second point, spiritual opposition. And third point, salvation. This is verse 12. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, so again, what's the result of all of this? Well, the proconsul sees and believes in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and he receives salvation. Salvation comes. Now again, we read this, and we might have an objection here, and it's like, well, you know what? If I could do what Paul did, I think I'd see more conversions too, right? If those who disagree with me, if I could just make them blind temporarily, I think I could probably, I could probably do this as well. But notice what makes the difference? Yes, the miracle's helpful, but it says the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracle helped confirm it, but the teaching of Jesus, the message of the gospel, was already at work in his heart. And it wasn't the miracle that changed. And remember, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. People saw Jesus himself do miracles and didn't believe. It was because the teaching of Jesus was resonating in his heart. 
Again, unless the Father reveals his Son to someone, no one will believe. You could see resurrection from the dead and you wouldn't believe it unless God reveals his Son to you. And this is what we pray for, with our, again, with our friends and our family. This is how we pray for them. God, reveal your Son to them. If you've ever met with a non-Christian and you want them to become a Christian, and you're just like, I don't know... I wish I could speak this in a way that would just like click and I don't know how. And it's like, at the end of the day, well, unless the Father reveals Jesus to them. So he has to. That's what we pray for. So again, in summary, this, that was, this third point is very short. In summary, where the gospel goes under the power of the Spirit, it brings salvation. It opens eyes to the truth that we're dead in our sins and have no hope but Jesus died for you and for me, took all of our judgment, and there's life eternal in his presence through faith in him. And I have two final words for us, just two kind of takeaways from this story. First is, pray for persons of peace like Sergius in this neighborhood. You know, one of our hearts, one of our burdens is we want to be a church that's reaching this neighborhood. We think this is part of God's sovereign plan that we're here. It's not a mistake or a coincidence. And so pray that God will provide persons of peace who, who live in the neighborhood, who come to know Christ, and through them the gospel begins to make inroads in this neighborhood. And, and part of that might be some of you moving into the neighborhood. So pray for persons of peace. But second, pray for salvation. And pray with expectation. Because we are sent out by the very spirit of Jesus Christ. It's not me sending you out. It's not your your school, or your you know, home pastor, or whatever. It's the Spirit of Jesus speaking, saying, go. It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ who authorizes you, who says you have authority to call people to repentance. I don't have that authority, but Jesus has given me that authority, and he's given it to you through his Spirit. And lastly, the very Spirit of Jesus is the one who's going to empower you, just like he empowered Paul, to do what you can't do on your own, so pray for salvation, but pray with expectation. Why? Because we have the Spirit of Jesus going with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you include us in the work that you're doing. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts, in our midst, the way that you're forming us to love you and love your word and, and love your kingdom and, and your ways. We, we, we ask that you will send your spirit to send us out. We ask that this little church will be mighty in your kingdom to see people who are dead come to life, to see the broken bound back up, to see the lost found. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves, Jesus, but because we believe you really are the son of God. And we want others to believe that too. We give our lives to you. We give our souls to you. We bow down before you because you are king and you are worthy. Amen.